Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, one of the many volunteers uh, here at the Commonwealth Club who put programs together. Um, And I'd like to say we've done over a thousand programs uh, since the pandemic began, since we have the pandemic as our topic tonight, or the now endemic. Um, And uh, I wanted to mention uh, that, first of all, we've been having live audiences for about a year and a half and people are starting to come back. And I just want to remind everyone that live theater is much more interesting than to watch done on TV. Um, So we welcome you back in to the club to watch these things in person. And I think it's a particularly important when we're discussing, you know, major issues that influence our society that really require a nuanced and sophisticated answer that we have to come to some kind of consensus so that we can really move forward instead of just fighting about things. Um, And that's what we like to do with the Commonwealth Club. So um, come and enjoy the live theater of it uh, whenever you have the opportunity here in San Francisco. But now that we have a worldwide audience, Uh, for our programs, we don't expect you to come uh, if you live outside of San Francisco. So without further ado, our speaker tonight is Dr. Monica Gandhi, who is uh, an epidemiologist at UCSF, and she's also the author of the book Endemic. So Dr. Gandhi, (laughs) (laughs) you came out here to San Francisco because you already knew you wanted to do research uh, in epidemiology, but also for HIV. So why don't you explain that a little bit, and, and then we'll, and, and what did we learn from that? You mentioned a few things in the tape, but let's go into that a little bit deeper. Yes, yeah, so I um, grew up actually in a very conservative state, so I grew up in Utah, and mm-hmm. then I really didn't want to live there anymore, so I went to medical school in, uh, at Harvard, and then I came to UCSF. And the reason I came here is because of HIV, because I felt like um, we were the epicenter of the epidemic. I, it, the Utah connection means a lot because I was 12 when um, the first cases of HIV were reported, mm-hmm. and I felt very moved by them, and I wanted to be an HIV doctor since I was 12. So that's because, and it's connected to, to Utah because I felt really um, kind of othered in Utah. I was um, brown, and, uh, and uh, that wasn't actually very common. There wasn't a lot of diversity in our school, and I didn't understand why people were so stigmatizing and shaming and blaming and horrible about um, LGBTQ communities. Like it was mm-hmm. really shocking to see the response at the beginning of the HIV epidemic to see the president of the United States at the time not talk about it for four years into his presidency. Um, mm-hmm. And that's when Reagan mentioned it in 1985. So there was this kind of very terrible stigma and blame and shame that went around HIV, and I was really um, shocked by that mm-hmm. and really interested in working on that. So I knew I wanted to be in HIV from a very young age and then came here because this was the epicenter in San Francisco of the HIV epidemic, and I wanted to work on HIV, and that's what I ended up doing. Well, you talk about public health, and in, in, in your book, you make it very clear that you, you want the answers to be data-driven. You want, you want there to be an answer now. Obviously, at the beginning of the, of the uh, AIDS crisis, it was driven by fears and, and rumors. And Now, fortunately, we haven't had any fears or rumors during the uh, recent pandemic. <laughs> so we don't have to deal with it, no. So how, how, are, how is public health? You know, and, and, and officials and doctors in that area um, 
Obviously, you can't get rid of all the fears. You can't get rid of all the misinformation without having a totally fascist state and shut everybody down. Um, but what do you think is the best approach to dealing with that big issue? You know? Well, that is a really good question because what happened at the beginning of HIV is, and I, I do think we politicized both pandemics, like, right? Mm -hmm. So um, at the beginning of HIV, uh, Reagan was president, and so the public health community ID doctors tend to be very progressive and not right. And so um, whatever he would say, we would do the opposite. So he said abstinence-based only. Mm -hmm. So we said no, nothing doing. Even closing the bathhouses in San Francisco in 1984 was very controversial mm -hmm. because when they closed the bathhouses, there were phrases like, we don't want you to have bad sex. Right. And that really was the kind of shame-based approach that... Um, we really shouldn't be using. So, um, so that was Reagan's approach. If he wanted abstinence only, if his wife said just say no to substance use, we were going to use uh, harm reduction. And the idea of harm reduction is that you absolutely try to minimize the pathogen. No one wanted anyone to get HIV, mm. but you also do it within the context of individual and mm. societal needs. So if people had sexual needs and you didn't tell them to stay away from each other, mm. you figured out how to keep them safe within their human needs. Mm -hmm. So I think what happened with COVID is Trump was president. We were very um, gonna be opposite of Trump. And I think that the, the, the U.S. took much more of a fear-based approach because partially they were reacting against Trump. Mm -hmm. If he said open schools, we didn't want to open schools. But then also the U.S. somehow took much more of a fear-based approach. Mm -hmm. And this is truly documented, actually, like mm -hmm. the international literature. Mm -hmm. um, this was at one point in time, this is November of 2020, that our literature, our media was 87% reporting bad news. The international literature was reporting it at 51%. Mm -hmm. And the medical literature was basically where the international literature was mm -hmm. or media was. So we were always reporting bad news. It was called bad news bias. Mm -hmm. And it was, I don't, it, even after the vaccines were out, we somehow acted like nothing was going to change mm -hmm. and we were reporting bad news. And it was always fear-based. And I think that did a number on people's mental health. Mm -hmm. And that um, we now have the American Psychiatric Association saying everyone should be screened for anxiety, mm -hmm. like period, even if you don't look like you're anxious. We have rates of mental health um, disorders going up in children. So we just did that. I don't know if it's clickbait. I don't know if it's politics. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was reaction against Trump, but there was much more fear-based coverage here. And I think it was really difficult for Americans' mental health. This is a very ancient story. I mean, it goes back thousands of years, but we, we have a habit of scaring ourselves silly um, whenever we have the opportunity, just about. Um, but in this case, let's take the two pandemics combined just for a moment, the two that we're talking about now. I want to get to the other ones and what you learned from that. When AIDS started, it was pretty close to a 100% death sentence, right? And if, but it was not as easily transmissible. Yes. People were afraid that it was, but it wasn't. And, yes. and, and that was learned fairly quickly. Yes. Uh, and on the other hand, we have a pandemic that's respiratory and it, it passes really quickly. If you, had a, if you had a pandemic, which was as deadly as AIDS was at the beginning and was passed around as easily as COVID is, this is not something we want to deal with, obviously, but what do you think the reaction should be then? Because I think that this is what people are projecting with their fears. So, but what do you think should be done then? I mean, it used to be that you quarantine people in some harsher societies, they even just executed the people that had it or whatever. Yes. It doesn't always get rid of the problem anyway. 
So what do you think the public health answer would be to something like that? Well, I mean, then it would really be like the movies. I mean, then yeah. it would be like contagion. Like if right. we truly had a very, very high virulence, high fatality pathogen that was spread incredibly readily, mm -hmm. we would lock down, we would quarantine, we would isolate, we would do all of this. It would be like Ebola, but say it was spread mm -hmm. respiratorily. The issue with COVID is that it had an incredible age stratified aspect to mm -hmm. its um, pathophysiology. So, that, and this is very unusual. Mm -hmm. Measles, mumps, diphtheria, pertussis, they all affect young children and older people. So young children are very, very affected by measles. Mm -hmm. And, um, but this, there was, we knew early on in this pandemic from data from February, 2020 from Wuhan, mm -hmm. China, that somehow children were spared. And we figured that out later, um, uh, why they were sp spared uh, severe disease. It has to do with the fact that your own immune system in this case mm -hmm. was causing a lot of the pathophysiology. Your own immune system mm -hmm. called the innate immune response was causing all these cytokines and all these things to um, kind of attack your own body. And it's why we use steroids in the mm -hmm. hospital mm -hmm. to calm down the infection. It's called immunopathogenesis. And children don't have those same cytokines. Right. So, um, so there was something very bizarre, though, that happened because we knew early on that children were more spared and yet much more spared. They had much less severe disease. And yet we were kind of topsy-turvy about our response in the sense that the schools were closed, but bars were open. I mean, this is what UNICEF said, actually, in um, starting in June of 2020. They said that schools should be the last place to close mm -hmm. in a pandemic that is affecting children the least. Mm -hmm. And bars should be the ones that close. Mm -hmm. um, and... We just, I think that's where we got political in, um, in the United States because schools were not closed uniformly across the world. Mm -hmm. They were open very quickly in Nordic countries, like within six weeks. Denmark, actually, the prime minister said, I'm so sorry we kept them closed for six weeks. Let me apologize to the populace. Mm -hmm. And then Sweden, I think they were closed for very little time. Most of the Nordic countries opened fast and even the UK opened pretty fast. Mm -hmm. And here, um, it depended on if you're a blue or red state, how mm -hmm. fast you opened. And red states open faster. So the point is that like every infection is going to be different. So I did a 10-point playbook at the end mm -hmm. of this mm -hmm. for, for the next pandemic. But God forbid the next pandemic is what you just described. Mm -hmm. That playbook will go out the window because mm -hmm. respiratory pathogens and everyone, it's that high fatality. Everything will change. Mm -hmm. But this was much more nuanced than that mm -hmm. somehow. COVID was much, there was more nuance to this pathogen with its age stratified, who got sick, who ended in the hospital, who needed vaccines first, who needed boosters more, mm -hmm. which were older people. And we just did it in a very blunt way, I mm -hmm. thought. One of the things, that, before we leave children, um, was the harm. I mean, you, when you talk about public health, you say weighing the harms or you know, harm reduction rather than uh, the fact of the disease having to be reduced versus the harm. That, that a lot of children uh, in a mass society did not learn what they usually had learned when they were young, you know, for, to read faces, to, and, and that and seems like talk. a pretty big harm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, very early, I mean, that was a very bizarre also aspect of the U.S. that um, very early childhood does need uh, socialization, smiles, and all that, um, but they also need to talk, they need to see. And so no, the WHO is very firm. Anyone six or less should not be masked. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, the CDC said two mm -hmm. 
mm. um, or more. So just don't mask between zero and, and um, one year and 23 months. Mm. So, the, so two-year-olds were masked. And that toddler masking aspect, you know, it may seem like it's a little thing, but it really bothered parents mm. because they felt like they, there was no, they were chewing on it. It was like wet. It said Paw Patrol on it. It really wasn't doing anything, yeah, <laughs> those yeah. masks. And it just seemed like a one more dictum. I mean, that was the fourth thing of the pandemic playbook that you want to use education and harm reduction instead of coercion. And there was a coercive aspect. You mm. wouldn't get Head Start funding in preschools mm. from the federal government if the two-year-old wasn't masked. So these are the kind of things that I think alienated. I mean, right now we're at a point, right, where public distrust in public health is very high. It's about mm. trust in public health is about 30%. So we can't not face this head on that we mm. cause distrust. We can't mm. We can't um, pretend that, that, that this was a perfect response. We have to address this. That's part of the reason I wrote it, because I wanted the last chapter for people to come back with trust, because I don't want, God forbid, another pandemic to happen because of global warming or something else and us to be in a place where people don't trust public health or vaccines. Or vaccines I want people yeah. to trust vaccines. Well, you know, when you talk about it being data-driven, one of the big issues is that a lot of people want certainty about something, especially when they're afraid. The more afraid they are, the more certainty they want. And when you, you know, science uh, and data-driven decisions are not that. They're sophisticated, they're nuanced. They're saying, this is what we know now. Um, but if you take a stand that sounds like, you know, it, it, it was an absolute, like everyone has to wear a mask, something like that, and then it changes, then you don't want to look foolish <laughs> by changing your mind. But if but you scientists. started off from the, from the beginning saying it's data-driven, as soon as we find out, we'll change our minds. Change your mind, though. Yeah, like, change your mind, then. Don't I mean, we, that's the yeah. very interesting thing is I'm in academia, mm -hmm. which is a very different way of being my fellow academic friend is there. And <laughs> in academia, you change all the time, actually. Right. Like, in HIV... In 1985, there was this very interesting time where the Discover magazine, which was a science-based magazine, said the most horrible thing on their cover. They said, uh, don't worry about HIV. This is just the fatal price you have to pay for anal intercourse. Yeah. Like literally, that's what Discover magazine said. And that same year, Newsweek magazine had a picture of like um, a family with a little baby and like a heterosexual couple. And they said, no one is safe from HIV. Mm -hmm. Neither one was true, actually. Like there were gradations of risk with mm. HIV. There were certain um, sexual practices that were more risky than others, mm. or a, a young child was actually not at risk unless they were getting blood transfusion. So mm. that kind of dramatic, ridiculous statements without changing it with time. Okay, now we've really figured out risk factors. Mm -hmm. Turns out that this type of um, you know, sexual activity is more uh, risky than this. So let's, let's tell you some nuance here then. Mm -hmm. um, and no, you don't need the dental dams anymore for mm -hmm. like orals. Okay, sorry, I'm talking a lot about sex. But, like they, they, but with this was stuff that we changed. We used to tell women to use dental dams for lesbian sex. That wasn't actually required. Mm -hmm. And then you changed it. You said, no, this is like no risk. And, but this is where you want to use a condom, or at least I'd suggest you use a condom. So everything kept in changing, and you said it really cleanly. And in COVID, um, we had a few spokespeople for COVID. And I think, like you said, they acted more like politicians where they didn't want to change and go on TV and said, mm -hmm. guess what? The vaccines aren't preventing infections as much. Right. They're preventing severe disease, though. And that's great. That's OK, because that's a really good thing to prevent. Mm -hmm. Instead, they kind of double down sometimes on their positions. Mm -hmm. But that's what politicians do. That's not what scientists do. <laughs> scientists are supposed to not double down. They're supposed to keep on changing Mm -hmm. with increased data. And I keep on thinking, was it because it became too political or was it because we're a just, we're a soundbite society? Are we mm -hmm. good at saying 
stay at home, wear a mask, don't kill people, um, you know, don't breathe on people, just say no? Mm-hmm. Or should we have just had someone go on TV and just like explain it even though it took five minutes? Right. Um, if you can get the time on TV. But That's what I mean. Maybe we're too soundbite about our news. Yeah. But it, it's, it's interesting because if you make the statement, you know, that, that masks are required, you, you, you didn't have to start there. Like you said, it didn't have to be coercive from the yeah. start. You could say, it indica- you know, right now our indications are that this would be a good idea. And then all the argument between do you stay six feet away or three feet away or 12 feet away, right. you, you know that none of the science ever said at six feet, all of a sudden the pathogen hits the ground and, and, and is no longer useful anymore. You know, it was never that. Right. In fact, that was actually really, the three feet, six feet is very interesting because <laughs> what happened is the, the WHO said one meter mm-hmm. and there, we said six feet and apparently someone had miscalculated <laughs> and didn't know the conversion between, um, um, you know, these two systems of metrics. Jimmy, Jimmy Carter should have gotten his way. We should have all gone over we to the meter system and no, we wouldn't have had this problem. <laughs> so, um, so that made a lot of parents really upset actually yeah. because what was happening is that in schools, public schools would say, I can't do six feet between desks. I can do three feet. They get to do three feet in Europe. Right. How come we can't do three feet? And we said, no, it's six feet. And the way that CDC would say that would be with a lot of like, it has to be six feet. Yeah. But that isn't actually true. There was never a measurement. Mm-hmm. That same thing was actually with aerosols and droplets. Um, aerosols are like um, kind of stay in the air for a while and are very fine. Mm-hmm. And then droplets are gobs a spit. And it depended on what you were doing. If I was singing, mm-hmm. then I was more aerosolized. If I was talking, it was more droplet spread. It's nuance. It wasn't always one way or the other. Mm-hmm. In general, we knew that indoor spaces that were non-ventilated spread it the most. And so what Japan did is, and what Sweden did is mm-hmm. they said, you know what, let's just kind of open those windows Wear masks if you're indoor and in crowded spaces, but they didn't close stuff down. Mm-hmm. We made it seem like it had to be absolute. And I think that absolute not only didn't work, but it, we're in a very terrible place with vaccines right now. I'm really worried about where mm-hmm. we are with vaccine confidence. Mm-hmm. And I don't want measles to be in Ohio, but we did have a measles outbreak in Ohio. And mm-hmm. we did have a polio outbreak over the summer in New York. Like, it has real-world consequences to not be nuanced and yes. scientific. And right now, it's in vaccine confidence. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there was all that stuff about vaccines and autism that was is, is sitting there at the has base. resurrected, though. Yeah, of course, because, you know, people find it when they're looking for vaccines. Right. And, and uh, you know, all the research that was based on that was all taken care of 20 years ago, but there, it, it always false. keeps coming back, keeps coming back. It keeps on coming back. Yeah. And I, I do think it's, I mean, I really keep on marveling at this. Right now, our candidates for president, there is a strong vaccine commentary around it, mm-hmm. which is very strange, like mm-hmm. both on the Democrat and the Republican side. And um, I don't think we'd be here if we didn't have all this distrust in public health where people aren't like, well, I'm gravitating towards... RFK Jr. because he's saying a lot of other things that are reasonable, like mm. maybe we shouldn't have done the school closures. He's also saying vaccines are bad. Mm-hmm. That isn't true, actually, but people get them. Mm-hmm. You, you take everything with a candidate sometimes. So I'm, 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 I don't know if censorship's the answer, but I'm very worried about the anti-vaccine sentiment. I'll mm-hmm. just give it. As an ID doctor, that's what I'm most worried about. Maybe, maybe the vaccine should get better PR. You know? They need better PR, because, yes. I mean, if, if you, I, I've seen lists of what, what has changed or saved the most lives 
in, in history and public health. No doubt. And, and it's like uh, indoor plumbing. <laughs> yes, water sanitation. Washing, wa wa water sanitation yeah. and vaccines. That's it's like number so three. True. More than a billion, you know, from all the vaccines, not, not the particular ones, but the idea of them and how they work using our bodies to our advantage. You know, they show uh, you part of the virus yeah. and then you develop a healthy immune response without having to go through the virus. Right. And um, or the pathogen, they're just incredibly important. They're the, the most important kind of public health metric like you measure, like you said. And and this kind of vaccine hesitancy has used to be more on the left. And now it's more on the right. We used to have right. RIN populations not vaccinating. And unfortunately, one of your fears is now that those, those two sides will merge. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and, and, and then there'll be a big, big group. Yes, yeah, I, I'm I grew scared. Up with yeah. in a big family, uh, 11 kids. And, and uh, my mother had this book, you know, uh, Gene got the measles on this day, then the next one, and the, two days later, the next one. And everybody that was over two all got the measles, and then the next one, mumps. And, so it, it, and then once we got to the late 50s, the vaccine started coming in, yes. and then, then it went to all the younger ones didn't get any of those. You didn't have to go through the yeah. misery of the illness. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what they do. That's what vaccines do. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So um, let's, let's talk about, you know, uh, the big issue that you have about um, resources. You said, you know, you, you, want, you want the resources to be what comes out and not the coercion. Why don't you talk a little bit more about that? Because it's definitely not the way it was done. And, and, it, and it probably has a little bit to do with our drift towards authoritarianism anyway, instead of, instead of this more democratic, let's talk about it and make some sense and, and get cooperation. Yeah, well, this is very interesting because um, so my, the phrase is resources before restrictions. Right. And um, so I keep on going back to the Nordic countries because they were really left at the time. Now Sweden has, I think, a right government, but at the time they were very left and they didn't use authoritarian means. They didn't actually say, they didn't close restaurants, they didn't lock down, they didn't say, they just made recommendations. Mm -hmm. And they, people trusted the government, so like people weren't actually mingling in, in indoor spaces and getting the infection. They weren't because they listened to the government. Um, but they provided resources before restrictions. So the idea there would be what we did here is we restricted everyone and then people who could afford it stayed home and they worked on their laptops and people who couldn't afford it went and delivered food to them. Mm -hmm. And the reason that that was really significant is that same thing happened in the cholera epidemic in 1851 in London where all the rich people got to stay in their houses and then the food and water was delivered by the lower classes mm -hmm. and the lower classes had to go around that pump, the, John, the pump that Jon Snow finally removed, mm -hmm. where cholera was hanging around that pump. That's where they got their water. So it was always this differential between poor and rich mm -hmm. about who got infected with an inf infection. And no, despite our widespread restrictions, the exact same thing happened here. Mm -hmm. People who had essential work and who had to go and deliver and who had to work, just like in that video, it was mm -hmm. in our population, the immigrant community and undocumented or documented immigrants that were working. Mm -hmm. And they, all got, they were the ones that we were seeing in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So if you provided resources for people to stay home when they got infected mm -hmm. so that they didn't go to work infected because how can they tell their boss mm -hmm. that they can't come to work. Right. They would just take Sudafed and go to work like they were doing everything to hide the symptoms mm -hmm. and go to work because you didn't provide them with resources to stay home, mm -hmm. especially if you were a day laborer and your every day mattered in terms of you worked. Mm -hmm. So we didn't do this kind of new, I call it a tailored or a chiseled approach. Mm -hmm. We used a really blunt approach. Mm -hmm. And the blunt lockdowns did lead to closure of medical care. 
Mm-hmm. And it also, f- the fear was leading people not to come to medical care. And then we saw a lot of, unfortunately, excess mortality after mm-hmm. after we had the vaccines in well into this year from people getting late with cancer diagnoses, with cardiovascular disease, stroke care. Mm-hmm. And that blunt lockdowns did that. We shouldn't have closed medical care. And I also have a lot in this book about I don't think we should have closed the schools as long mm-hmm. as we did. Yeah. Um. It's and schools, just as a comment, I mean, I, yeah, my no. children got to go to school because they were in private school yeah. because my husband had gotten ill um, and uh, I knew I needed them in private school. And it was the public school patient, the public schools that could, didn't open. So the private schools opened, the public schools didn't. That seemed really unfair because it really wasn't something inherent to school. It had to do with if you had the means or not. Okay. And, and this issue about, you know, how the poor are treated versus the rich. It's interesting to me. I mean, obviously again, for thousands of years, we, we've had this issue in, in the way we organize our civilizations. It would seem to me that the medical one, especially in the case of a pandemic, is maybe one of the best ways to get this idea to dissolve because we're all interconnected. And if you do this, uh, you know, it's just like that we don't get the vaccines to the poorer countries. I want you to talk about that in a second too because it's even a bigger issue. But if we don't take care of everybody, everybody suffers. So exactly. we're, we are here connected on this one. And, and there may be other ways that people can feel less connected and therefore you can't convince them. But this should be the first thing that people get, connect, you know, get convinced that this is a way to, that the, it's stupid of us, very stupid of us and self-destructive, not just other destructive to, to behave this way. I totally agree. Like this I was actually <laughs> so much of this book uh-huh. because I'm fundamentally really interested in poverty. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, it's a just a big, it sort of drives me in all things. Even my interest in systemic racism would be around poverty. Like I'm interested in poverty because I use, I do work in India and other places. And, um, and poverty was, was deepened because of our response to the pandemic and children. Mm -hmm. And then what we didn't do was like you just said, global equity with vaccines. So we should have learned this from HIV because Mm -hmm. what happened with HIV is that we got these amazing excellent treatments for HIV and we just happily gave them to people in the US and Europe and then the pandemic raged on in sub-Saharan Africa, in East and Southern Africa. And well into the 1990s, when we had these drugs, late 90s, still weren't getting the drugs to South Africa and sub-Saharan Africa. And then we had a international AIDS meeting in, in Durban, South Africa in 2000. And this time people marched together because this is another thing about HIV that mm-hmm. activists, doctors, researchers, patients, everyone kind of comes together. At mm-hmm. least later in the pandemic, we all marched together. And everyone was marching in Durban and they were saying, we're not going to take our meds in the US unless you can give meds to sub-Saharan Africa. Like mm-hmm. there was a real movement that this is so profoundly unfair. Mm-hmm. And so then what happened is India actually kind of violated a patent. Mm-hmm. Um, they said they weren't, but they did. And they and they started selling um, antiretrovirals to South Africa for less than a dollar a day. Mm-hmm. And the pharmaceutical company sued South Africa for, for taking the drugs from India. And it was so embarrassing that the pharmaceutical companies were doing that, that everyone protested and they said, okay, we won't see you. Stop. Okay, we'll stop. And, and we didn't do... So that's how antiretroviral access expanded. They just finally said, no, mm-hmm. we're not going to do this. We're not going to listen to your 
kind of patent laws because this is a global health emergency and we're going to sell this to places in sub-Saharan Africa. And here we could have done that because mm-hmm. what had been established in the HIV movement is something called the TRIPS waiver that we could have, the World Trade Organization could have said in the summer of 2020 while we were doing vaccine trials, oh, we're going to waive the patents. It doesn't matter. This is a global health emergency. We're having a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Let's let India and South Africa make mRNA vaccines for the world. Mm-hmm. And India and South Africa went to the WTO in October of 2020, and they said, please let us make these vaccines off patent mm-hmm. because we've been doing well so far. But what if, I don't know, a variant called Delta comes around mm-hmm. and like really hurts India? And they said, um, no, we're not going to waive them. And and when when... Biden came into office, the pharmaceutical, one of the first letters he got was from Moderna and Pfizer saying, yeah, don't listen to India and and South Africa. Please don't um, invoke the TRIPS waiver. So we didn't, and we didn't, um, we didn't actually spread these vaccines around the world. We didn't give them equally to low-income countries. Mm -hmm. And, um, and unfortunately then vaccine hesitancy set in and then we had a situation where even when we finally got the vaccines to low-income countries they weren't taken as much mm-hmm. as a, a higher rate as they would have been if we'd gotten them out earlier earlier um it seems to me uh, obviously we need the research to be done and the quick work that these companies did is amazing yes um and that that's crucial to our thing to our survival and to our at least uh, the success here but it can also be handled in a different financial way. I mean, the U.S. government could say, okay, thank you very much for doing that. Here's $10 billion, and now we're going to distribute it for free. Now we're going to manufacture it as cheaply as we can and get it everywhere in the world. Not, not say, you know, we're just going to steal it from you, but here's yes. $10 billion, and now that's enough for what your cost was. Uh, you have a big enough profit, and now this is an emergency. I mean, and not, not for every drug, but at least... You're absolutely right. They need profit because they they did all this work. But in a way that did happen. I mean, this is the other thing about Trump, like Operation Warp Speed Mm -hmm. was actually under him. Mm -hmm. And Operation Warp Speed was a really good idea. Mm -hmm. And it was a public private partnership to take taxpayer money and give it to companies Mm -hmm. to help them develop the vaccines because he was a businessman. Mm -hmm. So what we could have done is also give him more credit for the vaccines, because I think then the right would have taken Mm -hmm. the vaccines more readily. He was mad because he didn't win the election, so he didn't like push them or anything. Mm -hmm. But he could have because he took the vaccines himself and he got boosted. Mm -hmm. There could have just been more like giving the former administration praise. And you're right, pharmaceutical companies could have been given more so that they would dis- they would allow the off-patent manufacturing to happen. This also has to change for the next pandemic is right. how to help global equity happen better in a pandemic because global equity didn't happen and it's still not happening with the ap- antivirals right. like Paxlovid. Right, right. So why don't you talk about Paxlovid? I mean, one of the things that you're saying about this being an endemic is that we can now, the difference from a, a pandemic to an endemic, you can explain that, and then also what it is that we have now that causes that decision to be made. That's where we are. I mean, people are yeah. still dying from it, obviously, but... Yeah, I mean, that is actually... Th- this, is, this is the unfortunate aspect of COVID, but I think it's tremendously important to understand to know the difference between eradication, control, and demicity. Mm-hmm. So these are like definitions in infectious disease epidemiology, but what we'd like to do is eradicate every pathogen on the planet. Mm-hmm. But it turns out we've only eradicated two. Mm-hmm. And one is called Rinderpest, and that was in cattle, and they eradicated it by killing, killing them. Okay, killing, so let's call the cattle that. Yeah, yes, I'm, I'm sorry, the that, cattle. That, that, that hurts more. Yeah, it's awful. So we can't, yeah. so that's the only other pathogen. And then of course we know smallpox is eradicated. Right. 
but there were five reasons smallpox was eradicated and COVID doesn't have any of them. Mm-hmm. One, no animal reservoirs. Mm-hmm. None. There's not a primate. There's not a cat. There's not a dog. There's not a deer. There's not a mink that contains smallpox. So we could eradicate it. Um, by the way, polio only has primates. So we could, mm-hmm. we could eradicate polio if we had the political will, um, mm-hmm. and maybe we will. Then the second reason was that smallpox gave you sterilizing immunity or the vaccine, so you couldn't give it to someone if you got it. Mm-hmm. The third reason is smallpox had those very distinctive pox. It didn't look like mm-hmm. a lot of other infections, but COVID looks like allergies or like flu or like mm-hmm. rhinovirus or like so many things. Fourth reason is that you could spread COVID even when you're pre-symptomatic. That wasn't true with COVID. And then also smallpox was really stable and COVID changed more than we thought it would. Mm -hmm. So all those reasons means we can't get rid of it. And that's very sad. We can't. In fact, China tried. China tried at the expense, I think, of some human rights violations Mm -hmm. and a lot of human rights violations. And then their populace took to the streets. They protested and they said no more lockdowns. And then they opened up on December 7th, 2022. So you can't eradicate it. So what you have to do is get to a stage where its level of illness is around the same as other pathogens Mm -hmm. of its ilk. And its ilk is influenza because influenza acts like it. So you need vaccines and therapeutics. We got the vaccines in January of 2021, but we didn't actually get therapeutics until January of 2022. Mm -hmm. And therapeutics meant a lot. I don't mean the inpatient therapeutics, which helped. I mean, being able to go to a to a pharmacy and get an outpatient pill mm-hmm. to treat COVID if you are much more at risk, if you're older. Mm-hmm. And that was really important to get Paxlovid and Molnupiravir, which doesn't work as well. So you really needed antivirals and vaccines, mm-hmm. I think, to declare it endemic. Mm-hmm. And you need better antivirals. We need a Paxlovid that doesn't taste as bad and, <laughs> and doesn't have the ritonavir in it. And that's coming. Yeah. So it's a product that's being studied. And there's, so you need ongoing research into COVID. Mm-hmm. And that's my other worry is that we have such politicization that Congress may not fund some of these antivirals that we need. We're always going to deal with COVID. We're always going to deal in the medical. My life is will never be the same Mm. um, as an ID doctor. But I think that people can live normally Mm. because they have these tools and those tools are vaccines. Who needs the booster and the antivirals? And that is part of the 10-point plan Mm. is celebrating the biomedical advances. Mm. We totally celebrated in HIV. We said, go back to normal life. We have antivirals. And Mm. in COVID, we said, we have antivirals, we have vaccines, but mask and distance and don't go to the theater. Mm. And that didn't make sense to me because it felt like we weren't celebrating them. We weren't celebrating, yes. Um, so you, you've listed a lot of analysis in your book about different things that we tried. Mass, distancing, social distancing, outdoor versus indoor. Do you think you could rank in your mind which things that we did were the most effective in bringing it down and which were the least effective? And, and because that seems to me would be very useful for the next pandemic if it's a coronavirus or if it's something that's at least somewhat similar to this? Yes. I think that's such a great question. And the last part of the book is this 10-point plan. And Mm -hmm. I think the most effective thing we did was was vaccines. Mm -hmm. I mean, actually, Sweden got out who didn't lock down. They got the vaccine out to older people really quickly, and they had really low mortality after that. So Mm -hmm. I think vaccination was the most effective thing. 
Then if you look at that 10-point plan, the next thing I think that was most effective was ventilation. So mm. outside was better than inside. And closing the beaches, by definition then, closing beaches and closing parks was dumb mm. because then people couldn't go outside and then that forced them inside to hide from the authorities. And then, yeah, and then so uh, vaccinations me, I think in, is the yeah, most. Yeah, let me interrupt for a second yeah. about the outside, the outside versus inside. Yeah. And the ventilation. Now our, our building here at the Commonwealth Club is new and it had has a really great ventilation system and with, with with good uh, um, filters and everything. So we were luckily all set for that part of it. But um, there are a lot of environmental uh, concerns of, of having less ventilation and, and tighter buildings. It takes less energy. But you're kind of saying, at least from a health point of view, that we ought not to go as far in that direction and make sure that the ventilation systems in our buildings going forward. It's a little bit like for earthquakes, when you know you're in an earthquake territory, you have to build your buildings a certain way. Yeah. If we're going to have pandemics, maybe we should start building our buildings and our homes uh, slightly differently. I think it is the most important non-pharmaceutical intervention that we had because masks depend on you wearing them. Right. And so it's like a condom. It's like behavioral. Right. And it also depends on the type of mask because the cloth masks probably didn't do much. Mm -hmm. um, so ventilation is like takes it out of your hands. Mm -hmm. Like you don't, it's, it's just happening around you. So I think ventilation is tremendously important for control of pandemics. And the White House and CDC is talking about ventilation mm -hmm. and what ventilation you need and the HEPA filters. It's going to help with respiratory pathogens. Mm -hmm. And what they did in Japan is they use ventilation. They just opened the windows. We're, we were also lucky that in California, you can open the windows. Like right. we weren't so cold that we couldn't just open the windows because that's really the best form of ventilation. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you. That was the most important um, non-pharmaceutical intervention. And then deep cleaning didn't work. So that was because it wasn't spread by fomite. So that was another aspect of the circle of trust or the circle of the pandemic is that if something doesn't work, stop doing it because then it decreases trust. Like when people saw deep cleaning, they thought that was dumb or they thought that the theater was dumb. They called it... Um, what do they call it? Like virtue signaling, virtue. like things that that didn't work, like that just decreases trust to like say, I just deep clean so you can come into my building. But that wasn't what prevented the pandemic or the groceries airing or whatever. How or keeping the started? books. We used to quarantine books. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You couldn't like you had to put them in the library and then they needed to sit for 48 hours before someone could check. Out. <laughs> That's weird. That yeah. doesn't make sense. <laughs> so, so where did the idea that, that it could pass that way? Are there other diseases that can pass that way more easily? Or is it just a myth? It, it was kind of just that fear at the beginning mm -hmm. that what is going on? So we're going to start, we're going to stop doing everything. Mm -hmm. In general, respiratory pathogens spread through sneezing, coughing, exposure to other secretions. Mm -hmm. And this really wasn't any different. Where that came from is that you could culture a surface and you could see coronavirus on it. Mm -hmm. But that really isn't how people were getting it. They were getting it from the respiratory spread. But we were, that's the other thing about, it's, I call it, they, the WHO actually calls it an infodemic, but I talk about it in the right. book. There was just too much out there. 87,000 articles were published mm -hmm. on COVID mm -hmm. in the first year of the pandemic. There hasn't been 87,000 articles in 40 years of HIV. There was just too much. And one would say, and they weren't all well-reviewed and they weren't all very good studies. Mm -hmm. And so one would say one thing and one would say, yeah, I could culture it from a surface. And it was just, it's called an infodemic. There's just too much. Some of it's not right. Some of it wasn't rigorous. And then it confuses everyone. And then we just get scared about everything. So you're, you're basically saying that we don't need to keep following that advice about drinking bleach to take care of it? Yeah, okay. And, that, and, and that's fair enough. Like there was minimization by Trump. Yeah. There was weird stuff that he said. Yeah. 
I, I think that's when Trump, when Fauci put his um, hand to his face. <laughs> there was there was weird stuff that was done, but we didn't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Right. Exactly. Like opening schools was. Oh, there's a line in <laughs> there's a line in a movie that says then you get a wet, critically injured baby. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you don't want to like do go so far that like if when he said open schools, that was what Europe was doing. Right. It really wasn't a crazy thing for him to say. Mm-hmm. But but the blue states said nothing doing. Yeah. Yeah. In other words, you're asking us to be nuanced and sophisticated and data driven about our politicians as well. Yeah. Wow. Yes, because, <laughs> because I really do think that if we had given Trump credit for the vaccine, mm-hmm. if the news had said this was developed under the former administration and your president, mm-hmm. that you guys consider your president, then I do think the right wing more, because you know what ended up happening yeah. is that the, 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 it was white Republicans by August 2022 mm-hmm. that had the highest death rates. Mm-hmm. Racial and ethnic minorities had actually increased their vaccination rates because of community campaigns like what was just illustrated. Mm-hmm. But it was people who could have taken the vaccine who didn't. Mm-hmm. And if we had just praised, given Trump some praise, then I think we wouldn't have had the polarization. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's at least at least we're developing a lot of evidence that a data-driven, you know, uh, more nuanced approach to things might work better. Yes, you are just you just said the whole book in one line. Yeah, okay, yeah. good. <laughs> so, um, why don't you talk a little bit more about children and 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 how we dealt with children and how we shouldn't have dealt with children and and what was done in different places. Yeah. So that is chapter five, and it is actually a very long chapter. Um, and the reason I was really interested in the school issue is because I'm a student of infectious disease. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is I like to read history books about ID because I love ID. I think it's, I love parasites. I love worms. Like, I don't really know how to explain how much I love infectious disease. And so I, I would read about it. And there was this one thing about schools that it was the sacred place, like, even in during measles pandemics or diphtheria or pertussis, schools were closed for very short periods of time because mm-hmm. schools were so important to children. And then I really read about what happened in 1918 mm-hmm. with the influenza pandemic with schools. And this is, what, this is just in a nutshell what happened. Liberal places like New York and New Haven and Chicago, they said, oh, the federal government's saying we should close schools because we're in the middle of a pandemic, but we're not going to because... Mm-hmm. Most of our public school students are in low tenement housing, in low-income housing. Schools are a a place of nutrition to be checked for signs of abuse. Mm -hmm. It's a place of escape, and it's a place where we give people food. And we also think learning is really important. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to close our schools. And they were very controversial. New York City said we are not going to close our schools. Mm -hmm. And they didn't close their schools. And um, and then they, but they definitely kept windows open. And sometimes children were outside in blankets learning, but they were doing whatever they could to keep the schools open. Mm -hmm. And what we did in this pandemic is the liberal places closed. And I think it's again because Trump said open. And then the red states opened earlier. And then we had this bifurcated system where we could see that those kids were doing okay and the teachers were doing okay. And we could see that the Nordic countries were doing okay, but we still kept our schools closed. And we were closed the longest in California, mm-hmm. 50 out of 50 in opening schools. So it was clearly political. Mm-hmm. And then unfortunately, I in the fifth chapter, I detail what that led to. And it led to mental health difficulties, learning loss. Um, and in poor countries, because this is really important, we're only thinking about the U.S., but... I traveled some in, in my, I'm very interested in India, and in India it led to um, 
girls not learning and the boy learning, meaning like in a household, you'd have one phone. And so the boy got the phone mm-hmm. and the daughter didn't get the phone. So right. then the boy got education and the girl didn't. In Uganda, it led to more, and this wasn't just in Uganda, but other places, more girls going into sex work. And mm-hmm. there was an increase in, in HIV. In Bangladesh, it led young boys to never go back to school again because they started earning money mm-hmm. as day laborers. And then in the Philippines, it led to very high rates of, of sexual abuse of young children at home. So mm-hmm. there was terrible things that happened in each country, depending on their particular situation. There's just detail after detail in Chapter 5 about mm-hmm. the setbacks that are going to happen for children and the trillions of dollars in lost income. And I was really interested in this for three reasons. I really like children. I love children. Mm-hmm. The second is that my children, because they were in private school, got to go to school, and I thought that was really unfair. And then the third reason is because I had edited a book on women's empowerment for UC Berkeley or for UC Press. And the only thing to get women empowered is education. It's like mm-hmm. the only thing to get them not to get married early. Mm-hmm. It's the single biggest not risk factor for have early childhood marriage. Mm-hmm. It's the most important thing is education. So I think it, it was the biggest mistake we made. And you, you, and you also talk a lot about harm reduction. And one of the things that you said, even from the 1918 uh, influenza epidemic, you know, well, yes, it might be dangerous to have the schools open, but it's less dangerous for them to be here that's in our reduction. schools than to be home in the tenement. That's harm reduction. And, and that's harm reduction. Yeah. It says, okay, yes, we're going to have to accept. It's very tough, as you, as you said in your book, and I, I thought quite eloquently, um, you know, that when the debate starts about these things, about the children, and someone says, well, you just want to kill children. Yeah. And then you said, that, that puts a damper on the discussion. I thought it was one of the best understatements. They that really did. Uh, well, it was yeah, really hard to argue against. Yeah, I, exactly. wanna, I didn't want to kill children. Yeah, and so you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, this is terrible, this is terrible, but this is less terrible than this is. That's it. That, yeah. It's the balance, and yeah. that's what we do in HIV. We really right. do. We just never tell someone to just go inside their closet and close the door. We've never, yeah. well, some people have said that, but we don't like the people who say that. Right, right, right. Go back in your closet. Yeah, go back in the closet. We don't, we don't like those people. We don't like anyone who says that. Like, yeah. that's not our, our way of doing HIV. Right. There's no data behind that. Yeah, no. I I guess if you stay in a closet and you just stay in a room, you may not get infected with COVID, but there is other health effects. And I think this is what you have to balance in society in a holistic approach to public health. And that's why I started with the the, the scenario where you you had something as deadly as HIV, but as as, as transmissible as COVID. Then then you have to do these these major things or the human race is not going to survive. Then everyone has to go in their closets. Yeah. yeah. But that's, that's, I hope, never will happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a highly unlikely experience because even the pathogens want us to be around so they can keep using us. That's exactly right. <laughs> pathogens do become sort of weaker because they like yeah. to infect more people. They want more baby pathogens. Right, right, right. It's amazing what even their desires do to us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a lot of questions okay. coming in, and uh, we can get back to some other things, but I want to get the audience questions in yes. here too, and we have some that come in overline, uh, online, that is, okay. not overline. Uh, first question, what can be done to provide better equity access to medical care in underserved communities? Big question. So this is actually a big part of the book as well, because um, as, as being a doctor who works in a public, public insured, with publicly insured population in a county hospital, I can't help but think that we need universal health care. And that was something that I really talked about in the book. I, don't, I do not understand um, 
uh, why we, um, I think that countries did better if they had universal health care. So that's what I would hope for. I know that's very ideal, but that's what I'd want. On the, uh, at least, at the very least, is Medicaid expansion in states that are not expanding Medicaid. Because what is happening is that, um, especially in our world of HIV, Medicaid is not being expanded in the very places, which is the South and Southeast, that need these preventative modalities the most. So first, Medicaid expansion and then, I, yeah, I want universal health care. I'm sorry. That's what I want. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I, really, I, I think we'll get there someday. All right. Now we have a nice personal question for you. What's the best personal or professional advice that you've ever received, and who was it from? If, you don't, if you're willing to say who it's from, but you can at least say the advice. Well, actually, it's very interesting because um, it was the phrase, make good trouble. And mm. what I mean by that is um, my position at the very beginning of the pandemic on mm. school openings and on closure of medical care was not exactly the same as some of my colleagues. Mm. And, um, and so because of that, I was out of step mm. and I felt really lonely and I felt really sad because I'm usually like completely in step with them. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I couldn't help myself because I just knew the school thing would be a disaster and it was. And so then someone said, make, make good trouble. And I'd never made any trouble before. I was like a really good <laughs> girl. I really was. I was like AP, AP calculus. Um, so, uh, so, I, so that was the best advice that like mm-hmm. it was okay that some people were mad at me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually a very tough thing to learn. Yeah, it was really hard because no one had ever really been mad at me to my knowledge before that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You might have missed something. <laughs> yeah, I may have missed something. <laughs> I mean, gee, yeah, there was this one girl in third grade. I, that was I, a long I was time say, ago. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I have a feeling you did very well in school, and it's pretty hard to be do very well in school and not have at least a couple other kids in the class mad at you about It's that. very true. Someone may have been mad at me, and I didn't even know. Oliver yeah. Fang was mad at me because we were competing for yeah. <laughs> So that's true. He was mad at me. But, okay. but right. I guess what I mean is that, that yeah, there was like – but the, the thing about the attacks is that – you could also be super closed down mm-hmm. and super like, let's just lock down forever. And that also made people mad at you. So sure. no matter what you said, people are mad at you. Now my main anger that I get from Twitter is, um, is from people who don't want to take the vaccine. I mean, like right now my entire, th- I get a lot of comments, you are a pharma shill. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even sure what shill means, but I, prom- I can solemnly <laughs> promise I did not become rich from pharmaceutical yeah. profits during the <laughs> pandemic. Because I really do believe in vaccines. It had nothing to do with that. Yeah, I think it's impossible to to work for anything on a on a cultural level and not have in our hyper polarized society too. Yeah, absolutely. But even polarized. even in a family of four people, you can't. Yeah, and eleven children. I bet. Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure even in your family, it's impossible to go for more than a month or two without somebody saying, "What was that about?" Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, here here's some questions here from the audience, and if anybody has any more, uh, just send them up. Um, we have colleagues whom we love, who work at CDC. What happened? Beyond the Trump rhetoric, did they bungle the testing? Did they misjudge the extent of the disease early on? And then here's a good question. What does CDC in 2025 look like? Well, not, this... not, if, not if you take over, then we know what it'll look like. But Okay, thank you. That's so nice of you. I don't want to, though. Um, but this is, this is a great question because, um, so the CDC, you know, was our... And I, I hate to use the word was, was our premier public health agency. And now this, when I said 30% trust in the CDC, CDC, I'm specifically referring to a um, Harvard study that was done on the American populace. And right now, yeah, there is, it was published in March of 2023. 
So right now, yeah, there's 30% trust in the CDC. So that's not all, that's under both, you know, that the trust has been declining. It was first under Trump and then under Biden. So we can't, we can't blame one administration or the other. Mm-hmm. They're, they, they're, the messaging was super mixed. It was super all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, Denmark and, and other countries in Europe, they said, take the vaccine and life goes back to normal because we know that things that are meaningful and social relationships are really important to you. So they used to have, like, they would have the CDC director equivalent on a billboard getting, rolling up their sleeve and saying, I get vaccinated so I can go to a big party. (laughs) And they did really do that. It was all, like, kind of optimism. And here the CDC director at the time, when the Delta variant came, said, it's great to get vaccinated. She definitely said that. And then she said, oh, but mask, like, after the vaccine. And it didn't make sense. And then... A lot of people were like, wait, how could your vaccines be that great if nothing changed? Mm. Nothing changed about your recommendations. And so that messaging was really mixed and bungled. And so was the, what happened at the beginning with testing because the CDC didn't want to go to private companies. And frankly, the private enterprises work well. I mean, that's kind of why warp speed works so well. Mm-hmm. So it got bungled in both administrations. We're at a 30% trust of the CDC. And in 2025, I hope it's better than this. They have to admit wrong. I really mm-hmm. do believe in the power of sorry. Mm-hmm. And like, if I have a patient who comes in and they have something bad happen to them, I always say I'm sorry. And I didn't cause the cancer. Yeah. But I always say I'm so, so sorry. Mm-hmm. And I actually genuinely believe that the CDC should say, I'm sorry for where we went wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm really, really sorry. And we're going to do this better and we're going to do this better. Mm-hmm. Right now, the CDC is being profoundly threatened by um, Republicans in Congress, like yeah. to be cut completely. And depending on right. who is president in 2024, there's a question of them not getting much funding at all. Right. So we, this polarization is terrible and it's focused on the CDC. Yeah, and it, it can, you know, apologizing is a good idea for not changing their judgment over time. But I think that when they say it, they should say so that the science part of it is, is reinforced. Exactly. At Things the change. At the beginning, we did not know what we should do. We did not know how dangerous this was. We reacted as if it's going to be very dangerous because who wants to react as if it's not dangerous and then it is, right? So, so that's perfectly understandable. But we took too long to make this decision and we took too long to make this change. Our judgment was still affected by our fear. If they said something like that, it's not exactly an apology, but it does explain, it also explains for the future how, yes, we're, don't expect us to be perfect in the future, but we're going to make a judgment call yes. based upon our data. Data. I mean, this yeah. is, everything has to be about data. There's a lot of references in this book because yeah. I can't get away f- as an academic <laughs> from data. So it was all yeah. data. Yeah. yeah. All right. Here's another question. Are you worried about virus warfare in our future? Well, I would say that, uh, that biosafety and laboratories, um, we need to think better about this um, because... Uh, the, the, so anthra- okay, so remember in 2001 uh, how hard that was that we had 9-11 and then suddenly like in October of 2011, people were getting envelopes full of white powder mm-hmm. and there was um, an anthrax uh, bioweapon mm-hmm. uh, uh, terrorism event. And yes, there is the possibility of lyophilizing um, different bacteria or of making virus warfare with pathogens. 
that means that we have to draw back our impulse, I think, to work on pathogens without safety. Mm. And uh, we have not been as good as we should have about biosafety with mm. what are called BSL-3 and BSL-4 criteria for working with pathogens. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of data is coming out right now about the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but there's no doubt that they weren't following as safe of protocols as mm -hmm. they should. Working with coronaviruses from nature that could infect humans. And um, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about three things. I'm worried about global warming causing new pandemics. I'm worried about- Because, because the heat will affect the, the viruses and make them they replicate. North. They're gonna change in a way that will then affect us. Exactly, like for example, coccidiomycosis is a fungus in Arizona and it's moving north because it's, it's too hot in Arizona for it. Now it's mm -hmm. trying to get cooler. Mm -hmm. Like it means that, path that people who have never been around this fungus are really susceptible and that's happening with pathogens. Mm -hmm. So we have eight cases of malaria in Florida that are spread not from imported. So mm -hmm. these are global warming will ca can cause a pandemic. And then one is bios not being safe in a lab. And then the third is virus warfare. Mm -hmm. In general, though, I will say that unlike the movies, it is pretty hard to make a virus like what you described that would be the mm -hmm. scariest virus. Right. And but we need more regulation like mm -hmm. virologists need to be regulated just like industry does about fossil fuels, you know. Mm -hmm. So like we do we do have to regulate and we shouldn't just give scientists, I think, carte blanche mm -hmm. to do things. So I think what's going to come out of this is more regulation. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt. OK, um, some countries are reporting excess deaths, not from COVID. What is your understanding of this? Is there any cause for concern? So um, there will be people on the internet and on Twitter that will say those are from the vaccine. I do not believe that they're from the vaccine. I believe that the excess mortality that happened after COVID is from the lockdowns and from medical lockdowns mm -hmm. and from diseases of despair. Mm -hmm. And there's actually very good documentation of this, and I talk about this here. Mm -hmm. There's the medical um, deaths are from, unfortunately, uh, um, not getting cancer diagnoses, not going to preventative care, coming in too late, heart failure because you don't want to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. That happened just to a patient of mine. Um, and just m m avoiding medical care. Then the second is unfortunately diseases of despair in young people. Mm -hmm. And um, this is well documented. There's very good Lancet articles. This is more increase in homicides, suicides, um, and mostly substance use in this country, mm -hmm. and especially in this city. We had three times as many deaths from overdoses in this city than we had of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of my patients um, had stopped using substances but turned to them because it was a, something of comfort mm -hmm. when life was so hard. So it's diseases of despair, and we have um, intensified despair in those diseases. So I think the excess mortality is from despair and loss of medical care. I don't think it's, again, from the vaccines, um, though that's a commonly used trope on, um, mm -hmm. on some parts of the internet. Um, this isn't exactly our topic, but um, you talk about the use of more drugs. How did fentanyl suddenly become the drug of choice when it's so much stronger than, than really terrible things from our youth you know, that, that, that killed people? Now it's... It's fentanyl. It, it's amazing. Why, I know. I haven't tried it, but I think it must... <laughs> no, I mean, there must be something I, I very appealing. Because uh -huh. you, you're right, heroin was like... It used to be heroin. Yeah, that was, that and was now there's fentanyl. You. And then there's something also very um, easy about contaminating other drugs with fentanyl. Right. 
And that's where our, our, a lot of our recent overdose has been. In, in. It's very sad because people are using methamphetamine. They have no idea that there's fentanyl in the methamphetamine, and they overdose very quickly. Right. Okay. We won't, that's a whole other yeah, topic. Yeah, a whole other topic. And then there was that whole prescription drug thing, but let's not go into that at okay. all. Okay. <laughs> so... Uh, so we're not going to the, those pharma. Schools. We're not okay. going to the Sackler family. All right. <laughs> they had nothing. No. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you think, uh, who do you think should wear a mask today and in what situations? Well, I think that's a very good question. I do think that the pe- there are four groups left who are most at risk for severe disease from mm. a COVID breakthrough. And where is this from? This is a Lancet study that was published in October 2022 mm. that showed who needed the boosters the most. And they were four groups, those over 80 Mm-hmm. years old, those um, who were on immunosuppressants, mm-hmm. and uh, those who had five or more comorbidities. It is that group, I, those three groups, it wasn't four, I'm sorry, three, that, that need boosters very regularly every time there's a surge or at least once a year mm-hmm. and should have Paxlovid ready if they get sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father is all of those things. He's 88. He went through B-cell lymphoma treatment and he got COVID two weeks ago. And he sailed through very readily. He was fine. But we kept him trying to make him take Paxlovid, and he did. But but he didn't like the taste, so he did stop it early. Mm-hmm. But he's very stubborn. But he... Um, but he but he did well because he had had five shots mm-hmm. and he'll get a six shot um, in the in the fall. So I think it's that group that we need Paxlovid and boosters. If you need to wear a mask or not, I think is up to you. Mm-hmm. I really do believe in mask choice at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, my father, frankly, does not because he's hard of hearing mm-hmm. and he does not like to wear a mask. He just doesn't like it on his face. So I, I just think it should be a choice. Um, I think the coercion aspect of it really turned people off. So I think that should be a choice. And if you're going to wear a mask, though, because you don't want to be exposed to any respiratory illnesses, I really would advise what some people are wearing, which are the N95, um, KN95, um, or KF94s, the really fit and filtered masks. Mm -hmm. Those are the best. So when you were sticking to your guns about school closures early on against your colleagues, did you ever think that your father's stubbornness had anything to do with that? that I never thought of that. But he's so <laughs> stubborn and he's, so, he's like, I will not wear a mask. I'm vaccinated. <laughs> and he also very stubbornly said, Paxlovid tastes bad and tell me when the next antiviral is here, but don't <laughs> give this to me again. So I hope he does. I mean, I realized that he got COVID and he did well because just like me, he believes in the vaccines and right. he really... I mean, he's 88, but I mean, it wasn't fun, but he was fine. Right. Okay. Well, I have. What is a soundbite you recommend for family members who distrust vaccines? Not your father. I yearn for anything I can share in a digestible, straightforward way to counter or help provoke more thinking about such distrust. Thank you. Two, I recall my doctor's office saying not to take. Oh, this is a different one. Different question. Well, I think that's such a good question about vaccines because I no. think the word anti-vax and anti-vaccine is is still very judgmental. So um, this is another part of this book. I didn't like the shame and the blame. So there was this once SNL episode where they were all sitting around a table mm-hmm. and they were um, like it was two years from that. Like there was a psychic with them and she looked into this thing and she said in two years you're going to go indoor dining. And then like, and then they all looked at that guy and they said, I don't know why that's bad, but you're such an asshole. Like, like, why did you go indoor dining? And they just looked at him with such 
contempt because she was looking in this thing and you weren't supposed to go indoor dining. I think there was this very blame, shame, stigmatizing aspect of public health in this. Mm-hmm. Like, what did you do to get COVID? And really, again, that is not what you're supposed to say, at least with HIV. I've never yeah. said to anyone, what did you do to get HIV? Yeah. So somehow um, it was... So I think the word anti-vaccine and anti-vax and you're so like... That kind of that kind of blame and meanness is... Uh, very polarizing. I think instead you should say, boy, I do think the CDC was really kind of confusing about the boosters. Um, They said that six-month-olds should get a booster, same as an 80-year-old, but no other country did that. That was really confusing. But just kind of going back to the principles of all these vaccine-preventable diseases, we don't hear about them anymore because of vaccines. We don't hear about polio and measles and pumps and diphtheria and pertussis and tetanus. It's all because of vaccines. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying something really mean like, you know why you don't have polio? Because you got, you know, like, because you're, you're going to get polio. Like, I don't, I don't know how to explain <laughs> it. Like, I just feel like yeah. we lost that non-judgmental aspect mm-hmm. of, of how to public health message that it was so hard earned in HIV to get non-judgmental because people were judgmental at the beginning. They were really mean. We have a very small non-judgmental thing here at the non- at the Commonwealth Club. We've been trying for a long time <laughs> to hold on to it in this uh, political era. Yes, um, and it was I know what the Commonwealth pretty Club well, is but great. We, don't, we don't exactly feel like we have a lot of friends. <laughs> <laughs> Please come back to the Commonwealth Club. Um, here, this is about uh, Paxlovid. I recall my doctor's office saying not to take Paxlovid when it was first made available, given the risk of bounce back COVID. Was this a real risk? Do you attribute this to vax hesitancy, or was it based? In fact, actually, it's really interesting. So in a nutshell, actually taking Paxlovid right away when you get symptoms, you will have a higher risk of rebound. And that just is data hot off the press from two weeks ago. If you take it two or three days into your course, then you won't get rebound. And this is just data that just came out. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because if you take it too fast, your your um, adaptive immune response that you got from the vaccine or from getting infected before does need to see a little bit of the virus mm-hmm. to formulate the immune response and attack it. If it doesn't see the virus because you take Paxlovid too fast, mm-hmm. then the minute you stop taking Paxlovid, you're going to get the rebound effect from the mm-hmm. immune response. So I would say really do take it two or three days into your course. Mm-hmm. And so that that is a correct thing. Great. And that's, uh, we have, it's I, now we have, shown. We have a real answer. Yeah, we have a real answer. Yeah. I love this question. Your one brother directs an HIV clinic in Massachusetts, at Massachusetts General Hospital. Your other is a successful immunologist. What was in the water at your house? No, actually, it wasn't that at all. Uh-huh. My parents are really bossy. <laughs> and, and it wasn't like, oh, we like, you know, like harm reduction. Like, what do you want to do? They were so authoritarian and it had to do with like coming here as immigrants and they just told us that I could be a doctor or an engineer, but that was it. Mm-hmm. And I had no choice. And then about 20 years after becoming a doctor, I realized I liked being a doctor. And then I said to my dad begrudgingly, I guess you were right. <laughs> but you yeah, they like made that? us. That was very nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how I said it. <laughs> and then take your packs a little bit. <laughs> Cause I'm right. Cause I'm right. <laughs> If you get any older, I'm going to be the one that's going to make every decision. <laughs> All right. So uh, we're almost out of time. I'll ask one last question. Uh, this is coming from uh, the YouTube chat room. Uh, critical info for those with health risks, immunocompromised, was sidelined because there were louder voices who wanted to be done. 
with the pandemic. So people stop paying attention to this, the groups that you're just talking about, the three groups. How do we take better care of those with health risk in the future? This is part of your plan, so it's a perfect question. Well, so I actually really do believe this because um, that these vaccines are very specifically powerful in immunocompromised individuals, mm -hmm. unlike a protein-based vaccine. So uh, because you make such high levels of protein mm -hmm. from the mRNA molecule that you get a good immune response, but you need ongoing boosters. Mm -hmm. So my father was profoundly immunosuppressed during the pandemic. He was getting really strong chemo. And so we ensured that he got regular boosters and Paxlovid. Mm -hmm. In terms of the whole world masking for him, he didn't actually, he didn't want to mask himself because of the hearing. Mm -hmm. And he didn't want that. He wanted kind of the medications for it. And I would say anyone who's immunosuppressed, I would be very regular with boosters. And I would ha not just have Paxlovid like call your doctor, I would have it on hand. Mm -hmm. So for example, the minute my father started having symptoms and he does have like two ID doctors, like um, as we got him Paxlovid, like, and now we have one in ha on hand and mm -hmm. like, he's going to have that if he gets it again. So that's how you, I think you protect through biomedical advances. And so you, you, and you said, the, since we are just talking about Paxlovid, you said the minute he gets his uh, symptoms, but it's actually two or three days. Yeah, though, though, if you're immunosuppressed, take it up one day after having symptoms. Okay. I will say that because okay. so we made him take it the day after. We were very careful about that. Okay, great. I thought there was a distinction. Yeah, there is a distinction. Yes. Okay, good. Yes. These were good questions. It Let's is, repeat the question. Yeah, the, re the repeated question is, can you ha get it on hand so that you have it in your household? What are the regulations? So I truly believe that anyone who's on immunosuppressant should have it on their household, and any reasonable physician should give it to you so that you have it in your house. So because... Um, you you just don't want to wait and like call them and like you also don't want to drive to the pharmacy because you don't feel well like my parents didn't have to drive to the pharmacy because they're 82 and 88 mm -hmm. when they got it and we didn't want them to so we had given it to them I mean like we physically I mean they ended up getting it at a wedding my brother's daughter's wedding anyway so it was like <laughs> he got it at the very wedding of, so my brother felt very guilty so we so I would say that um things things something like Paxlovid like Tamiflu for influenza, which doesn't even work as well as Paxlovid. Mm. If someone is immunosuppressed, you should ask your doctor right now. We're going into winter. I would like a supply of this at home, please. Mm -hmm. And I don't see any doctor who would not do that. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to prescribe. And that's for the immunosuppressed, not just for someone who wants to travel to another country. Yeah, I would only do that for the immunosuppressed because just going abroad and then you want your um, you know, course to be shorter. Yeah, yeah. You may be able to get it like you'd get azithromycin or ciprofloxacin when you travel for traveler's diarrhea. Right. So you can ask your doctor, but I do think it's, it's very important for those who are immunosuppressed, yeah. taking immunosuppressants. Okay, another important distinction because yeah. there's only so much Paxlovid out there. I don't want... Everybody who's traveling someplace to, to go and Like get to it. have a better time, yeah, yeah, yeah on yeah, their yeah. vacation, yeah. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Doctor. That thank was wonderful. You. Thank, thank you. Thank you for much. returning to the Commonwealth Club two years after. Thank you very uh, much. I love this wonderful. place. I love the Commonwealth Club. <laughs> and so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in our 121st year of enlightened discussion. And uh, Dr. Gandhi will sign her book afterwards anybody who would like it signed. Thank, Thank you. you very much for coming. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. 
go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.